Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up on Front Row, a new WRAL poll finds support for stricter gun laws in North Carolina. Student loan forgiveness faces major legal challenges, and the debate over Biden's energy policies intensifies. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rodman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Democratic State Senator Jay Chaudhry, political analyst Joe Stewart, Nelson Dollar, former senior policy advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House, and public relations consultant Pat Ryan. Jay, why don't we begin with a recent WRA poll that shows support for stricter gun laws in North Carolina? Yeah, Mark, this is a timely topic to discuss this week because on Thursday night, October 13, a 15-year-old boy allegedly shot um, five uh, victims, including a law enforcement officer and injured three others in Raleigh on Thursday night. Uh, the WRAL poll, in fact, uh, when, when it did the poll a couple of weeks ago, actually said that there were 47% of families were concerned about a mass shooting, which now the city of Raleigh has experienced. Uh, the, the poll actually focused on two areas on stricter gun laws. One is they looked at polling on raising the purchasing age of assault weapons from 18 to 21. 64% of North Carolinians supported that, including Republicans by 16 points, which I think a lot, some folks found uh, to be surprising. And the other area they polled on was about making sure uh, that we ban high-capacity magazines. Again, 55% of North Carolinians, a majority of them supported that, including 45% of Republicans. And I think what is an interesting takeaway is even though Congress just passed a historic uh, gun reform bill, 61% uh, of North Carolinians feel still feel like Congress should do more in this area. I think people feel like violence is overwhelming in this country, don't you, Nelson? It is. You have an entire generation uh, that is coming along in this age, particularly in, a, in adolescence, that are suffering from uh, essentially a mental health crisis. Uh, as you've talked about on this show, Mark, uh, the suicide rates for the last decade are up dramatically all across the, the, the country. And we're seeing greater alienation uh, among these kids that are, you know, whether it's the, the Parkland shooter who was sentenced uh, uh, this week as well, uh, down in Florida and others, there are patterns there. So we have to begin to do far more in the area of mental health, uh, particularly with our young people identifying folks that are alienated uh, from the system and get people uh, the help that they need uh, who are in crisis and in some cases, in these rare cases, but all too often turning to, to violence, not in some cases violence to themselves, but in, in the case of these shooters, violence against the community. A lot of police are being killed there, aren't they, Joe? Yes, and it's a particularly difficult time for law enforcement for a lot of reasons. COVID made things challenging for everybody, including law enforcement. Number of agencies across the state and state law enforcement groups also report being down in the number of officers in their roster, having a hard time finding individuals willing and interested in pursuing a career in law enforcement, in large part because of the cultural conflict that we're feeling now relative to law enforcement 
enforcement in the communities that they serve. I think one of the challenges that we face on this issue, and Nelson alluded to this, this is a complex issue. And very rarely are complex societal or cultural issues able to be fixed by a single remedy. There are any number of things that we undoubtedly need to do. The enhancement of mental health services, right. critically an important part of this. But so many more things to bring law enforcement in our communities back together to realize that the police are really just citizens like us who have been given the responsibility to provide safety to the public. Well, let me ask you, Pat, do you think the NRA has lost a lot of street cred in this debate? So I think there's this narrative out there that, you know, but for the gun lobby or the NRA, Republican legislators in the state or in the country would pass this uh, panoply of uh, gun control measures. I don't entirely buy into that. Um, I, I think there's another dynamic at play, which is particularly in primaries, I think that candidates um, express support for the Second Amendment and gun rights almost as a signal of a broader political philosophy. And so you can roughly translate, I think, I support gun rights into you can trust me that I'm a Republican. And you can roughly translate, well, there might be some gun control measures I would support roughly into I might side with Democrats on some, on some core issues, and that's an image problem in primary. You know what I, th I think, though, Joe? You just don't see the NRA doing many ads anymore in these races, do you? I haven't uh, seen any. Well, I, you know, that may be, that may be intentional in the fact that we still see contributions coming from the NRA to support these candidates. But I, I will say, just kind of building on Pat's point, I think one of the interesting issues that will face the General Assembly next year is the federal uh, gun reform bill that was passed that Tom Tillis, as a Republican broker, actually gives money to states for putting in place a red flag law. That's a law that would separate an at-risk individual from, an, from their weapon if they're viewed to be a threat to their family. Uh, there's an opportunity for the General Assembly okay. to do something, and I, I hope we can. That's generally had bipartisan support. Okay, great conversation. Mm -hmm. I want to move on, Joe, and talk to you about student loan forgiveness. It's facing some major hurdles. Yes, this is an announcement that President Biden made back in August in an attempt to honor what he considered to be a significant campaign promise to try to do something about the burden of student debt many Americans face. Forty-three million Americans hold a little over a trillion and a half dollars worth of debt, although the Federal Reserve says the vast majority of these folks have t less than $25,000 in loans still outstanding. The president's suggestion was that $10,000 of that uh, debt would be forgiven for individuals that earn up to $125,000 or couples making $250,000, a little bit more 20000 available if you held a Pell Grant, which are income-targeted student assistance loans. The challenge now is six states, the attorney generals, have decided to sue the federal government to try to block the U.S. Department of Education actually forgiving these loans. They say... They're uh, supposed to give these out October 23rd, I think. There are about 8 million of these uh, uh, debt holders that the Department of Education already has income information right. on and would be able to grant the loans. The original uh, proposal that President Biden put forward is early October, the application for the rest of the debt holders would be available, but I think this litigation puts a, a puts a significant question mark around whether this is actually going to be possible for the Biden administration to accomplish before the midterm election. Is this an election year ploy, you think, Pat? So you just look at the timing, right, that Joe just articulated, and it's weeks before the midterm election. There's no question in my mind that politics plays into the decision. Um, so I think certainly it's, it's an attempt, one, to fulfill President Biden's campaign promises, and two, an effort to, I think, do anything to um, avoid what looks to be a red wave coming um, in a few weeks. Let me just ask you this. Is there an accounti accountability mechanism in this? We know that people are making X, Y, or Z and not 400000 a year. 
There is no accountability in this program. So here's a new $400 billion program, and you determine if you're eligible. And it's really worse than you think. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, released a report back in July that shows over the past 25 years, the U.S. Department of Education not only didn't generate a promised $114 billion in income uh, out of these student loans, it actually cost $197 billion dollars. That's a $311 billion swing right there. And of course, it's the same flawed repayment system, uh, the information system they had that's going to manage the new program. And here's a kicker. Student loan reform back in 2010 was supposed to generate $70 billion off of these loans to help offset Obamacare. That's gone. This is just more hundreds of billions of dollars of rocket fuel on our soaring inflation. My friend, jump in here. Well, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, I think one is uh, we haven't seen the application yet, and so the lawsuit's not ripe it's yet. Well, it's not. It's not online because they haven't they haven't finished it online. And I think there's a question about whether it asks for your income. <laughs> but if we're going to talk about income disparity, I mean, certainly uh, we weren't having this debate when we were talking about PPP loans and whether folks were going to get PPP loans. But I, was it equitable? I mean, is it fair to the person who didn't go to college? Mm -hmm. Is it fair to the person who went to college and paid his student loan debt off? Well, I, I mean, I think what the Biden administration did was they focused on those that made $125,000 or less. It was giving them $10,000 in forgiveness. I think it's important for us to look that look at the fact that student loan debt can saddle someone for generations. We've had for-profit predatory colleges that have taken advantage of it that's disproportionately affected a lot of college students. Um, and there is public support for something like this. At the end of the day, will it happen? Well, I think the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration is going to go forward with it, but I think it's immediately going to go to court because of the the, the state attorney general's filing okay. the lawsuit. All right, let's talk about the president's energy policy. It's under fire. Uh, yes, former Clinton Treasury Secretary and Obama's top economic advisor Larry Summers recently said that Biden's reluctance to build more U.S. oil pipelines is quote kind of insane. Um, we have the, really the worst energy policy that we've had since the 1970s. And back then, we were at OPEC's mercy. Uh, we got smart. We pioneered the shale revolution. We won our energy independence over the course of this last decade. But now Biden is actively wanting to give it all back. He is discouraging any new investment in U.S. energy production. Today, we have, as an example, $100 billion worth of gas liquefaction projects permitted in the United States with no source of financing. We don't have the capital to do what we need to do. So where's Biden's uh, policy headed? Right now, for example, the Germans are paying the oil equivalent of $500 a barrel just for the natural gas that they're going to need for their industry and to heat their home this winter. The answer is not in Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or Russia. It's right here at home investing in our own uh, energy resources that we have. We could be fully independent with much lower prices today if we would do that. Jay, do you think when the Ukraine war started up that the president should have pivoted to domestic production? Well, look, I think one is, I, I think it's debatable and certainly not correct that we're not energy independent. We've been on a start of being energy independent since 20, 2005. We achieved that in 2017. Yes, it did happen under President Trump, but that wasn't because of just President Trump. That happened under, under previous administration, too. I would also take... Uh, 
issue with what uh, Nelson said about about domestic gas permittings because actually the administration has issued more permits for oil and gas leases on public lands than the Trump administration did in their first year. In fact, there have been 9,000 leases that have been given. Even if you have a permit, if you can't build, if you don't have the capital to build the facilities, if you don't have the pipelines to transport the product, they it are discouraging banks, aren't they, Jay, from investing with oil companies no, and, and wildcatters? No, I, I don't think they have. And in fact, I mean, I think the financing has to come from the marketplace, not not from the federal government. But this idea that, that there's no that they haven't granted oil and gas leases is is false. I mean, I think well, the other I think that, the. I think the other thing that I want to say really quickly is okay. like is that the 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 portfolio model for uh, at the end of the day in 2050 has to include renewables and we're certainly moving in that direction but doesn't mean that we can't have a mix why can't of oil we have why can't renewables. we have an all above uh, strategy uh, Joe well there are a lot of competing interests <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> this, this issue is in it terms a national of, security issue energy policy it, it significantly is and we're seeing this you mentioned Ukraine I mean that's a great example where European markets need the energy sources out of Russia and it's created a complexity in terms of our efforts to try to support the Ukrainians but at the end of the day Jack and Jill energy consumer in the United States are Jack and Jill voter and they're going to go to the the precinct this election and they're going to vote on their perception of whether their financial wherewithal is going to be significantly impacted by Great the continuing point. increases in utility costs above all other issues they probably are going to consider in this election. Uh, the president, I think, uh, Pat, has been very hard on Saudi Arabia recently. Right. So that's, I think, a, a whole story in and of itself. Um, it came out this week that the president had asked the Saudis to delay the announcement of their production cut until after the midterm elections, um, which you know, I think in most people's minds calls into question how much um, midterm election politics is influencing American foreign policy, right? The two, I think, in most people's minds should be somewhat separate. Well, let me mention one thing to you, Nelson. I mean, if Schumer and them try to penalize Saudi Arabia, could that backfire? It will be backfire geopolitically. I mean, what Europe needs right now is natural gas, not oil. Biden is concerned about the oil because of gas prices in the election. But when you look at the Ukraine war, that's more of a natural gas issue for uh, Germany and all of those countries uh, in, in Europe. So there's all sorts of disconnects. But fundamentally, what it comes down to is we have to have the capital. You have to be able to invest okay. the money to be able to, to bring our resources We'll continue to this conversation, obviously. I want to talk to Pat about a memorial that was uh, unveiled this week at Camp Lejeune. Sure. So just some brief context. Um, the Navy corpsmen have a wide variety of applications in the United States military. One of those is to deploy in battlefield situations with Marines. Um, so, for example, in World War II, Navy corpsmen landed at every Pacific beach with the Marines. Um, and their role is to, even at risk to their own lives, um, render medical aid to, to wounded Marines in those contexts. And so, uh, with that in mind, of course, the Navy corpsmen have a very special relationship with the United States Marine Corps. And so this week at Camp Lejeune, a new memorial to the Navy corpsman was unveiled. Um, it was, it's a statue that was designed by a North Carolina artist, and it depicts a Navy corpsman shielding with his own body a wounded Marine. And so in, in just researching some background on this, you just come across dozens of accounts of just indescribable bravery and heroism. There are a number of Medal of Honor recipients that were Navy corpsmen, of course, many of them died in service to, to our country. 
And so, you know, we're discussing here what, what we think to be some pretty important political debates and questions, um, but to spend just a few hours looking through those accounts, I think even just temporarily um, gives a sort of different perspective on, on where we are and, and what really the issues of today are. Joe, this is long past due, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and so many times the heroism and the acts of bravery that are, that are provided to our nation in its defense by our combat veterans is overlooked. We, we owe a great debt uh, to the folks that are willing to put themselves in harm way and for those that are willing to serve in, in the assistance and support for those combat veterans. And, it, you know, I'm reminded of the fact that they said in the years after the Second World War, when so many veterans came to Congress, people had had battlefield experience, that their willingness to work collaboratively and cooperatively across party lines was so much greater as a result of the shared experience that they'd had in combat. When you have a difference of opinion with some Marine that you're in a foxhole with, you put that aside to work on the mission that is in front of you and to provide for that defense. I, I hope that our nation can learn a little bit from these types of experiences and see, we have a lot more in common than that what actually separates us. And veterans are a great example of how you can accomplish great things putting aside those differences. Great comments. Jump in here, Jay. Yeah, Mark, I'd say two things. I think, uh, one, the memorial is a testimony that military history is a big part of our state's history and that it makes sense that we're doing that. Um, and then secondly, I think to Joe's point, I think it's interesting, 82% of young people today have not experienced war and armed conflict. Uh, the memorial's a way of, uh, of attaching the past to the present and even thinking about issues in the future. Tell us to wrap this up in about 30 seconds, my friend. Uh, yes, North Carolina's trying to do a lot to honor the sacrifices of veterans. Last year, the state ended taxation on military pensions. We've been doing a lot more in terms of investing in uh, traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, General Assembly also helped invest and a lot of, with a lot of other folks uh, in the new Veterans Life Center uh, up in Butner that are helping uh, struggling veterans who are trying to re return to civilian life. We've also been doing a lot more in terms of offering in-state tuition uh, to the families of active duty military while they're here in, in North Carolina, okay. as well as supporting the National Guard. I want to move on, go to the most underreported story of the week, Jay. Uh, Mark, there's a New York Times article this week about how hospitals around the country and regional centers from regional centers, smaller facilities have been closing down their pediatric units. And that's because uh, it's straight up economics. Hospitals make more money uh, from adult patients than they do from, uh, from ch patients that are children. Uh, but that's also due to staff shortages, inflation, and low medical reimbursement rates. Joe? President Xi of China is about to go before the National Congress of the, China, of, the, of the Chinese Communist Party, secure in all likelihood a consolidation of the power that he's been affecting a third term in that role. But he really represents a return to a ideological rigidity within China. Uh, Chinese leaders in the late 70s started to migrate away from the Maoist theories and were, in effect, running uh, what was state-run capitalism. But Xi has become more of a hardliner in many regards and, and taking a strong nationalist view on foreign policy matters with China is as we continue to do battle with China on an economics basis, important to realize some political shift that's taken place within that country makes their leadership a little bit more rigid to the old Marxist-Leninist ideals of the past. They're flexing their muscles around the world, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and our significant investor Taiwan in places Straits. like, well, in places like Africa, where they're making huge capital investments. Actually, South America as well. Absolutely. Nelson. Uh, yes, you've seen catchy TV ads uh, and new mandates for electric vehicles uh, 
take over the roads in, in, in the near future. What's underreported is the actual challenge of mass producing electric vehicles. It's not just a shortage of chips right now. To mass produce EVs affordably for Americans, it will take a vast global supply chain of raw materials, rare earths, including from countries like China, Brazil, the, D, uh, the DRC, and of course Russia, because you're going to need a whole lot of copper and they have the largest reserves. So you're going to have to have a lot more mining, a lot more base power generation, and that's going to have to include natural gas uh, powered plants, nuclear plants. EV sales uh, are growing, but they what still- What type of carbon footprint do they give out? The well, EVs, the Teslas. The production could be uh, quite a bit. I mean, and uh, there's some that say that that carbon footprint uh, is as much as the production of, uh, of 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 other vehicles. And I know that's a, a debated issue. But you know, for, and for right now, you only have one <coughs> percent of cars, SUVs, and trucks on U.S. roads. You know, Tesla dominates uh, the market but it's very expensive and you're going to have to have the base power the base power generation from somewhere so that carbon footprint is going to have to include the entirety of the uh, of the system Pat, underreported, please. Sure. This week, Russian President Vladimir Putin just weeks after explosions at the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines said that any critical infrastructure anywhere in the world regardless of who operates it or where it's based is quote under threat. And what that means, you know, we can debate, but the reality is, bringing it back here to North Carolina, our state relies entirely on a single pipeline to deliver all of our natural gas. And we saw last year with the hacking of the liquid fuel colonial pipeline that it's very possible for there to be supply shocks. And were there to be a similar supply shock to North Carolina's natural gas pipeline, um, the effects would be immediate and devastating. Duke Power burns natural gas in real time. Manufacturers rely on natural gas feeds for their operations, again, in real time. Um, and so I think it's just another example to take a look at our critical energy vulnerabilities Thanks in North Carolina. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Let's go to lightning round, Jay. Who's up and who's down this week? You know, I'm going to say who's up is the Raleigh Police Department state law enforcement that responded quickly and uh, subdued the assailant uh, with the mass shooting that took place in Raleigh. Um, it was it, it was uh, a tremendous, I think, scare that was that that a lot of citizens experienced, and they should be commended in their quick response. And who's down? I'd say uh, Infowars host Alex Jones. Uh, way down. Way way down by a billion dollars. Uh, the eight families of Sandy Sandy Hook shooting victims. Um, won that jury verdict against Jones. Uh, I think the message sends a resounding message that Jones's repeated lies that led to death threats against the families have real and crippling consequences. Joe. Up the potential price of pork, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case involving an animal cruelty law enacted in California that would compel pork producers to abide by certain standards, even if the product is produced in some state other than California. The justices asked a lot of questions about other things like apples and fruit and vegetables. Will that also be subject to this? And just a real quick shout out to Eastern and Western style barbecue. There's no reason to pick one or the other. They're both delicious. Okay. <laughs> Down is the Americans' perception of our role in right. relationship with adversaries around the world. Now, a recent poll said 60% of Americans say they feel the condition of American relations with countries like Russia and North Korea are only going to get worse going forward. Nelson. Well, who's up? I'm actually going to praise the uh, Biden administration on something. It's a it, it surprise, yes. Uh, uh, for moving to restrict the sale of um, 
high-end semiconductors, their designs, and their manufacturing equipment to China. This is easily the best geopolitical and economic move that Biden has made. Now, if he would just apply this appropriate logic to energy policy, we'd be in good shape. Uh, down is transportation. Uh, drought, a drought in the Mississippi Basin has left hundreds of grain barges uh, stranded. Okay. A key railroad union uh, has rejected Biden's pay deal. Uh, they may soon be on strike and diesel fuel is now back up over $5 a gallon uh, for truckers. So trouble in transportation. Pat, who's up and who's down? Sure. Up is core inflation, which is a measure that excludes volatile energy and food prices. It hit 6.6% last month, which is the highest level since 1982. Um, and going hand in hand with that down is, I think, um, the Democratic Party's prospects for avoiding a wipeout in a couple of weeks. Um, polls and momentum seem to be swinging at a critical time towards Republican candidates in very important swing is states. Is it all about kitchen table issues, you think, my friend? So, yeah. Uh, point was made earlier that every time somebody goes to the grocery store or the gas station, um, they're thinking about politics. That's not true of almost any other issue in the political sphere. Um, so, yes, I think pocketbook issues are the biggest factor. Headline next week, my friend. Uh, North Carolina State Fair sets an attendance record attributed to new rattlesnake hot dogs. Mark, I know you and I are going to go try some out. <laughs> Headline next week. Yeah, I'll be there. I think uh, playing off of what Pat said, I think the higher price of gas is probably going to lend itself to the red wave being a tsunami. Headline next week. Well, playing off what Joe said, uh, China's President Xi wins a third five-year term at the Party Congress next week. He is now the most powerful leader in Chinese history. Headline next week. Shockingly, Republican gubernatorial candidates in New York and Oregon are within striking distance of victory. I think they are on the precipice. Great job, gents. That's it for us. We got to roll. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Roderman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.